This episode of Sleepy is proudly sponsored by ButcherBox. If you've listened to Sleepy for a while, you know that I love good food, eating well and treating my body right so that I can take on my days. Well, ButcherBox helps you do exactly that. They deliver super high quality, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood right to your door. It's humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones. They have a huge variety to choose from. They are excellent deals. They've got recipes and guides and tips included, and there's free shipping, always. Eating well is a huge factor in getting a good night's sleep, as is sometimes saving the trip to the grocery store and taking some stress out of your daily schedule. I have been loving these deliveries for those reasons. Been cooking up their uh, steak tips with eggs in the morning with butter and scallions and soy sauce. And I also made a delicious brine chicken roast with lemon parsley gravy. So good. The prices for this kind of quality and convenience is really impressive. Uh, yeah, ButcherBox has made me very happy. So sign up at butcherbox.com sleepy and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com sleepy and use code sleepy to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Butcherbox.com sleepy. Eat well, sleep well. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable, where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Amy Morin, therapist and international bestselling author, here to guide you on a journey to reaching your greatest potential. Every Monday, I bring you into conversations with some of the most fascinating minds, experts, authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and musicians. They don't just share stories. They reveal the mental strategies that propelled them to the top. But here's the real magic. At the end of each episode, I break down their wisdom into practical therapist-approved advice. In my solo episodes, I dive deep into the techniques that build mental strength. It's like having your own personal therapy session as you discover how to turn these insights into steps you can take right now. This podcast isn't just for those facing mental health challenges. It's for anyone who wants to push their limits, achieve peak performance, and truly thrive. Are you ready to unlock your full potential? Then it's time to become Mentally Stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts. Hi, everyone. My name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. A podcast where I read you to sleep. I kind of mentioned this in the last episode, but I haven't really told a lot of people about this show. And somehow people are, are still finding it, which is incredible. Um, so if you have any friends that have trouble sleeping, why don't you recommend this to them? I'd love to know if it works. A couple people are getting a hold of me and saying that 
They're actually listening to it every night, which is kind of still surprising to me, but it's really humbling. So if this show works for you, or if you just like listening to it on the subway, or on a walk, or whatever, go on to Apple Podcasts and give it a quick rating. And if you want, you can leave in the review section a book that you'd actually like to hear on Sleepy. The more reviews we get, the easier it is for people to find the show. For those of you who've listened before, welcome back. For those of you who are new, all of these books that I'll be reading are classics. Books I've wanted to read for a long, long time. All books in the public domain. And just because I hope you'll be asleep by the end of this, a couple quick things. Uh, tonight I'm recording from the shores of Woods Hole, Massachusetts on Cape Cod. I'm here till June for the Transom Story Workshop, where rookies like me learn how to make good radio. So I have to thank the incredible Vicki Merrick at Atlantic Public Media for this cozy recording space. And also the music that you're hearing is by my good friend, James Lipkowski. It's played on this amazing little guitar ukulele thing that he made. Because I'm on the Cape, tonight I'm gonna read from a book that is part of New England's bloodline. It's Moby Dick by Herman Melville. This is definitely a book that I've always wanted to read, but have kind of been intimidated by the size of it. It's pretty long, and I usually think that I don't have the time. And as I'm recording this, there's this little window in the room that I'm in, and through it, I can see the Atlantic Ocean. I can see towards Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket, and I'm only an hour away from where this book takes place and was written. It feels pretty profound. So now, it's time to lay your head down, settle in, and fix your pillow just how you like it. Slowly melt into your bed, and close your eyes, and let me read to you. Ishmael. Some years ago, never mind how long precisely, having little or no money in my purse and nothing particular to interest me on shore, I thought I would sail about a little and see the watery part of the world. It's a way I have of driving off the spleen and regulating the circulation. Whenever I find myself growing grim about the mouth, whenever it is a damp, drizzly November in my soul, whenever I find myself involuntarily pausing before coffin warehouses and bringing up the rear of every funeral I meet. And especially whenever my hypos get such an upper hand of me that it requires a strong moral principle to prevent me from deliberately stepping into the street and methodically knocking people's hats off. Then I account it high time to get to sea as soon as I can. This is my substitute for pistol and ball with a philosophical flourish Cato throws himself upon the sword I quietly take to the ship. There's nothing surprising in this. If they but knew it, almost all men in their degree, sometime or other, cherish very nearly the same feelings towards the ocean with me. There now is your insular city of Manhattos, belted round by wharves as Indian Isles by coral reefs. Commerce surrounds it with their surf, 
Right and left, the streets take you waterward. Its extreme downtown is the Battery, where that noble mole is washed by waves and cooled by breezes, which a few hours previous were out of sight of land. Look at the crowds of water gazers there. Circumambulate the city of a dreamy Sabbath afternoon. Go from Corlear's Hook to County's Slip, and from thence by Whitehall northward. What do you see? Posted like silent sentinels all around the town, stand thousands upon thousands of mortal men in ocean reveries, some leaning against the spiles, some seated upon pier heads, some looking over bulwarks of ships from China, some high aloft in the rigging, as if striving to get a still better seaward peep. But they're all landmen, of weekdays pent up in lathe and plaster, tied to counters, nailed to benches, clinched to desks. How then is this? Are the green fields gone? Why do, what do they hear? But look, here come more crowds, pacing straight for the water and seemingly bound for a dive. Strange, nothing will content them but the extremest limit of the land. Loitering under the shady lee of yonder warehouses will not suffice. No, they must get just as nigh the water as they possibly can without falling in. And there they stand, miles of them, leagues, inlanders all. They come from lanes and alleys, streets and avenues, north, east, south, and west. Yet here they all unite. Tell me, does the magnetic virtue of the needles of the compass of all those ships attract them thither? Once more, Say you are in the country, in some high land of lakes. Take almost any patch you please, and ten to one, it carries you down in a dale, and leaves you there by a pool in the stream. There's magic in it. Let the most absent-minded of men be plunged into his deepest reveries. Stand that man on his legs, set his feet a-going, and he will infallibly lead you to water. If water there be, in all that region, should you ever be athirst in the great American desert, try this experiment. If your caravan happened to be supplied with a metaphysical professor, yes, as everyone knows, meditation and water are wedded forever. But here's an artist. He desires to paint you the dreamiest, shadiest, quietest, most enchanting bit of romantic landscape in all the valley of Seiko. What is the chief element he employs? There stand his trees, each with a hollow trunk, as if a hermit and a crucifix were within. And here sleeps his meadow, and there sleep his cattle, and up from yonder cottage goes a sleepy smoke. Deep into distant woodlands winds a mazy way, reaching to overlapping spurs of mountains bathed in their hillside blue. But though the picture lies thus tranced, and though this pine tree shakes down its sighs like leaves upon the shepherd's head, yet all were vain unless the shepherd's eye were fixed upon the magic stream before him. Go visit the prairies in June, when for scores on scores of miles you wade knee-deep among tiger lilies. What is the one charm wanting? 
water. There's not a drop of water there. Or Niagara, but a cataract of sand. Would you travel your thousand miles to see it? Why did the poor poet of Tennessee, upon suddenly receiving two handfuls of silver, deliberate whether to buy him a coat, which he sadly needed, or invest his money in a pedestrian trip to Rockaway Beach? Why is almost every robust, healthy boy with a robust, healthy soul in him at some time or another crazy to go to sea? Why, upon your first voyage as a passenger, did you feel yourself such a mystical vibration when first told that you and your ship were now out of sight of land? Why did the old Persians hold the sea holy? Why did the Greeks give it a separate deity and make him the own brother of Jove? Surely all this was not without meaning, and still deeper the meaning of that story of Narcissus, who because he could not grasp the tormenting, mild image he saw in the fountain, plunged into it and was drowned. But that same image, we ourselves see in all the rivers and oceans, which is the image of the ungraspable phantom of life, and this is the key to it all. Now, when I say that I'm in the habit of going to sea whenever I begin to grow hazy about the eyes and begin to be overconscious of my lungs, I do not mean to have it inferred that I ever go to sea as a passenger. For to go as a passenger, you must needs have a purse, and a purse is but a rag unless you have something in it. Besides, passengers get seasick, grow quarrelsome, don't sleep at nights, do not enjoy themselves much as a general thing. No, I never go as a passenger, nor, though I am something of a salt, do I ever go to sea as a commodore, or a captain, or a cook. I abandon the glory and the distinction of such offices to those who like them. For my part, I abominate all honorable, respectable toils, trials, and tribulations of every kind whatsoever. It is quite as much as I can do to take care of myself without taking care of ships, barks, brigs, schooners, and whatnot. As for being a cook, though I confess there is a considerable glory in that, a cook being a sort of officer on shipboard, yet somehow I never fancied broiling fowls, though once broiled, judiciously buttered, and judgmatically salted and peppered, there is no one who will speak more respectfully, not to say reverentially, of a broiled fowl than I will. It is out of the idolatrous dotings of the old Egyptians upon broiled ibis and roasted river horse that you see the mummies of these creatures in their huge bakehouses, the pyramids. No, when I go to sea, I go as a simple sailor, right before the mast, plumb down to the forecastle, aloft there to royal masthead. True, they rather order me about some, and make me jump from spar to spar, like a grasshopper in a May meadow. And at first this sort of thing is unpleasant enough. It touches one's sense of honor, particularly if you've come of an old established family in the land, the Van Rensselaers, or Randolphs, or Hardicanutes. And more than all, if just previous to putting your hand into the tar pot, you've been lording it as a country schoolmaster, 
making the tallest boys stand in awe of you. The transition is a keen one, I assure you, from a schoolmaster to a sailor, and requires a strong decoction of Seneca and the Stoics to enable you to grin and bear it. But even this wears off in time. What of it if some old hunks of sea captain orders me to get a broom and sweep down the decks? What does that indignity amount to? Wade, I mean, in the scales of the New Testament. Do you think the archangel Gabriel thinks anything the less of me because I promptly and respectfully obey that old hunks in that particular instance? Who ain't a slave? Tell me that. Well then, however, the sea captains may order me about. However, they may thump and punch me about. I have the satisfaction of knowing that it is all right. That everybody else is in one way or another served in much the same way. Either in physical or metaphysical point of view, that is. And so the universal thump is passed around. And all hands should rub each other's shoulder blades and be content. Again, I always go to sea as a sailor, because they make a point of paying me for my trouble, whereas they never pay passengers a single penny that I ever heard of. On the contrary, passengers themselves must pay, and there is all the difference in the world between paying and being paid. The act of paying is perhaps the most uncomfortable affliction that the two orchard thieves entailed upon us. But being paid, what will compare with it? The urbane activity with which a man receives money is really marvelous, considering that we so earnestly believe money to be the root of all earthly ills, and that on no account can a moneyed man enter heaven. Ah, how cheerfully we consign ourselves to perdition. Finally, I always go to sea as a sailor because of the wholesome exercise and pure air of the forecastle deck. For as in this world, headwinds are far more prevalent than winds from astern. That is, if you never violate the Pythagorean maxim. So for the most part, the commodore on the quarter deck gets his atmosphere at second hand from the sailors on the forecastle. He thinks he breathes at first, but not so. In much of the same time that leaders little suspect it. In much of the same way to the commonality lead their leaders in many other things. At the same time that the leaders little suspect it. But wherefore it was that having repeatedly smelt the sea as a merchant sailor, I should now take it into my head to go on a whaling voyage. This the invisible police officer of the fates, who has the constant surveillance of me, and secretly dogs me, and influences me in some unaccountable way, he can better answer than everyone else. And doubtless, my going on this whaling voyage formed part of a grand program of providence that was drawn up a long time ago. It came in as sort of a brief interlude and solo between more extensive performances. I take it that this part of the bill must have run something like this. Grand contested election for the presidency of the United States. Whaling voyage by one Ishmael. Bloody battle in Afghanistan. 
though I cannot tell why it is exactly that those stage managers, the fates, put me down for this shabby part of a whaling voyage when others were set down for magnificent parts and high tragedies and short and easy parts and genteel comedies and jolly parts and farces, though I cannot tell why this was exactly. Yet, now that I recall all the circumstances, I think I can see a little into the springs and motives which being cunningly presented to me under various disguises induced me to set about performing the part I did, besides cajoling me into the delusion that it was a choice resulting from my own unbiased free will and discriminating judgment. Chief among these motives was the overwhelming idea of the great whale himself. Such a portentous and mysterious monster aroused all my curiosity. Then the wild and distant seas where he rolled his landball, the undeliverable, nameless perils of the whale, these with all the attending marvels of a thousand Patagonian sights and sounds, helped to sway me to my wish. With other men, perhaps, such things would have not been inducements, but as for me, I am tormented with an everlasting itch for things remote. I love to sail forbidden seas and land on barbarous coasts. Not ignoring what is good, I am quick to perceive a horror and could still be social with it, would they let me, since it is but well to be on friendly terms with all the inmates of the place that one lodges in. By reason of these things, then, the whaling voyage was welcome. The great floodgates of the wonder world swung open, and in the wild conceits that swayed me to my purpose, two and two there floated into my inmost soul, endless processions of the whale, and midmost them all, one grand hooded phantom, like a snow hill in the air. The Carpet Bag I stuffed a shirt or two into my old carpet bag, tucked it under my arm, and started for a Cape Horn in the Pacific. Quitting the good city of old Manhattan, I duly arrived in New Bedford. It was on a Saturday night in December. Much as I disappointed upon learning that the little packet for Nantucket had already sailed, and there no way of reaching that place would offer till the following Monday. As most young candidates for the pains and penalties of whaling stop at this same New Bedford, thence to embark on their voyage, it may as well be related that I, for one, had no idea of so doing. For my mind was made up to sail in no other than a Nantucket craft, because there was a fine, boisterous something about everything connected with that famous old island, which amazingly pleased me. Besides, though, New Bedford has of late been gradually monopolizing the business of whaling, and though in this matter poor old Nantucket is now much beyond her, yet Nantucket was her great original, and the Tyre of Carthage, the place where the first dead American whale was stranded. Where else but from Nantucket did those aboriginal whalemen, the Redmen, first sally in canoes to give chase to the Leviathan, and where but from Nantucket, too, had that first adventurous little sloop put forth, partly laden with imported cobblestones. So goes the story, 
throw at the whales in order to discover when they were nigh enough to risk a harpoon from the bowsprit. Now having a night, a day, and still another following before me in New Bedford, ere I could embark for my destined port, it became a matter of concernment where I was to eat and sleep meanwhile. It was a very dubious looking, nay, a very dark and dismal night, bitingly cold and cheerless. I knew no one in the place. With anxious grapnels, I had sounded my pocket and only brought up a few pieces of silver. So wherever you go, Ishmael, said I to myself, as I stood in the middle of a dreary street shouldering my bag and comparing the gloom towards the north with the darkness of the south, wherever in your wisdom you may conclude to lodge for the night, my dear Ishmael, be sure to inquire the price, and don't be too particular. With halting steps I paced the streets, and passed the sign of the crossed harpoons, but it looked too expensive and jolly there. Further on, from the bright red windows of the swordfish inn, there came such fervent rays, it seemed to have melted the packed snow and ice from before the house, for everywhere else was congealed frost laid ten inches thick in a hard, asphaltic pavement. Rather weary for me, when I struck my foot against the flinty projections, because from hard, remorseless service. The soles of my boots were in a most miserable plight. Too expensive and jolly again, thought I, pausing one moment to watch the broad glare into the street and hear the sounds of the tinkling glasses from within. But go on, Ishmael, said I at last. Don't you hear? Get away from before the door. Your patch boots are stopping the way. So on I went. I now by instinct followed the streets that took me waterward, for there, doubtless, were the cheapest if not cheeriest inns, such dreary streets, blocks of blackness, not houses on the other hand, and here and there a candle, like a candle moving about in a tomb. At this hour of the night, of the day, of the week, that quarter of town proved all but deserted, but presently I came to a smoky light proceeding from a low, wide building, the door of which stood invitingly open. It had a careless look, as if it were meant for the uses of the public. So entering, the first thing I did was to stumble over to an ash box on the porch. Ha, thought I, as the flying particles almost choked me, are these ashes from the destroyed city, Gomorrah. But the crossed harpoons and the swordfish. This, then, must needs be the sign of the trap. However, I picked myself up, and hearing a loud voice within, pushed on and opened a second interior door. It seemed the great black parliament, sitting in Tophet. A hundred black faces turned round in their rows to peer, and beyond, a black angel of doom was beating a book in a pulpit. It was a Negro church, and the preacher's text was about the blackness of darkness, and the weeping and wailing and teeth gnashing there. Ha, Ishmael, muttered I, backing out, wretched entertainment at the sign of the trap. Moving on, I at last came to a dim sort of outhanging light, not far from the docks, 
and heard a forlorn cracking in the air. And looking up, saw a swinging sign over the door with a white painting upon it, faintly representing a tall, straight jet of misty spray. And these words underneath, a spouter in Peter Coffin. Coffin? Spouter? Rather ominous in that particular connection, thought I. But it is a common name in Nantucket, they say. And I suppose that this Peter here is an immigrant from there. As the light looked so dim, and the place, for the time, looked quiet enough, and the dilapidated little wooden house itself looked as if it might have been cartered here from the ruins of some burnt district, and as the swinging sign had a poverty-stricken sort of creak to it, I thought that here was the very spot for cheap lodgings and the best of pea coffee. It was a queer sort of place, a gabelanded old house, one side palsied as it were, and leaning over sadly. It stood on a sharp, bleak corner, where that temptuous wind, Euroclidon, kept up the worst howling than ever did about the poor Paul's tossed craft. Euroclidon, nevertheless, is a mighty pleasant zephyr to anyone indoors with his feet on the hob quietly toasting for bed. And judging of that temptuous wind called Euroclidon, says an old writer, of whose works I possess the only copy extant, it maketh a marvelous difference, whether thou lookest out from the glass window, where the frost is all on the outside, or whether thou observest it from the sashless window, where the frost is on both sides, in which the white death is only a glacier. True enough, thought I, as this passage occurred to my mind, old black letter, thou reasonest well. Yes, these eyes are windows, and this body of mine is the house. What a pity they didn't stop up the chinks and crannies, though, and thrust in a little lint here and there. But it's too late to make any improvements now. The universe is finished. The copestone is on, and the chips were carted off a million years ago. Poor Lazarus there, chattering his teeth against the curbstone for his pillow, and shaking off his tatters with his shiverings. He might plug up both ears with rags, and put a corn cob into his mouth, and yet that would not keep out the tempestuous Euroclidon. Euroclidon, says old Dives, in his red silken wrapper, he had a redder one afterwards. Pooh, pooh. What a fine, frosty night. How Orion glitters. What northern lights. Let them talk of their oriental summer climes, of everlasting conservatories. Give me the privilege of making my own summer with my own coals. But what thinks Lazarus? Can he warm his blue hands by holding them up to the grand northern lights? Would not Lazarus rather be in Sumatra than here? Would he not far rather lay him down lengthwise along the line of the equator? Yea, ye gods, go down to the fiery pit itself in order to keep out this frost. Now, that Lazarus should lie stranded there on the curbstone before the door of Divas. This is more wonderful than that an iceberg should be moored to one of the Maluka's.
yet Dives himself, he too lives like a czar in an ice palace made of frozen size. And being a president of a temperature society, he only drinks the tepid tears of orphans. But no more this blubbering now. We are going a-wailing, and there's plenty of that yet to come. Let us scrape the ice from our frosted feet and see what sort of place this spouter may be. The Spouter Inn. Entering that gable-ended Spouter Inn, you find yourself in a wide, low, straggling entry with old-fashioned wainscots, reminding one of the bulwarks of some condemned old craft. On one side hung a very large oil painting, so thoroughly besmoked, in every way defaced, that in the unequal cross-lights by which you viewed it, it was only by diligent study and a series of systematic visits to it, and careful inquiry of the neighbors, that you could anyway arrive at understanding of its purpose. Such unaccountable masses of shades and shadows that at first you almost thought some ambitious young artist in the time of New England hags had endeavored to delineate chaos bewitched. But by dint of much and earnest contemplation and oft-repeated ponderings, and especially by throwing open the little window towards the back of the entry, you at last came to the conclusion that such an idea, however wild, might not altogether be unwarranted. But what most puzzled and confounded you was a long, limber, portentous, black mass of something hovering in the center of the picture over three blue, dim, perpendicular lines floating in a nameless yeast a boggy, soggy, squitchy picture, truly, enough to drive a nervous man distracted. Yet was there some sort of indefinite, half-attained, unimaginable sublimity about it that fairly froze you to it, till you involuntarily took an oath with yourself to find out what that marvelous painting meant. Ever and anon a bright, but alas, deceptive idea would dart you through. It's the Black Sea in a midnight gale. It's the unnatural combat of four primal elements. It's a blasted heath. It's a hyperborean winter scene. It's the breaking up of the ice-bound stream of time. But at last all the fancies yield to that one portentous something in the picture's mist. That once found out, and all the rest were plain. But stop. Does it not bear a faint resemblance to a gigantic fish, even the great Leviathan himself? In fact, the artist's design seemed this, a final theory of my own, partly based upon the aggregated opinions of many aged persons with whom I conversed upon the subject. The picture represents a Cape Horner in a great hurricane, and a half-floundered ship weltering there, with its three dismantled masts alone visible, and an exasperated whale purposing to spring clean over the craft is an enormous act of impaling himself upon the three mastheads. The opposite wall of this entry was hung all over with a heathenish array of monstrous clubs and spears. Some were thickly set with glittering teeth resembling ivory saws, Others were tufted with knots of human hair, 
and one was sickle-shaped, with a vast handle sweeping round like the segment made in a new mown grass by a long-armed mower. You shuddered as you gazed and wondered what monsters cannibal and savage could ever have gone on death harvesting with such a hacking, horrifying implement. Mixed with these were rusty old whaling lances, with harpoons all broken and deformed. Some were storied weapons, with this one long lance, now wildly elbowed. Fifty years ago did Nathan Swain kill fifteen whales between a sunrise and a sunset. And that harpoon, so like a corkscrew now, was flung in the javan seas and run away with by a whale, years afterwards slain off the Cape of Blanco. The original iron entered nigh the tail, and like a restless needle sojourning in a body of a man, traveled full forty feet, and at last was found embedded in the hump. Crossing this dusky entry, and on through yon low-arched way, cut through what in old times must have been a great central chimney with fireplaces all around, you enter a public room. A still duskier place as this, with such low ponderous beams above and such old wrinkled planks beneath that you would almost fancy you trod some old craft's cockpits, especially with such a howling night when this corner anchored old ark rocked so furiously. On one side stood a long, low shelf-like table covered with cracked glass cases filled with dusty rarities gathered from this wide world's remotest books. Projecting from the further angle of the room stands a dark-looking den. The bar, a rude attempt at a right whale's head, be that how it may, there stands the vast arched bone of the whale's jaw, so wide a coach might almost drive beneath it. Whether in the shabby shelves, ranged round with old decanters, bottles, flasks, in those jaws of swift deconstruction, like another cursed Jonah, by which name indeed they called him, bustles a little withered old man, who for their money dearly sells the sailors' deliriums and death. Abominable are the tumblers into which he pours his poison, though true cylinders without, within the villainous green goggling glasses, deceitfully tapered downward to a cheating bottom. Parallel meridians rudely pecked into the glass surround these footpads' goblets. Fill to this mark, and your charge is but a penny. To this, a penny more, and so on to a full glass the Cape Horn measure, which you may golf down for a shilling. Upon entering the place, I found a number of young seamen gathered around a table, examining by a dim light divers specimens of scrimshander. I sought the landlord, and telling him I desired to be accommodated with a room, received for answer that his house was full, not a bed unoccupied, but a vast, he added, tapping his forehead. You hain't no objections to sharing a harpooner's blanket, have ye? I suppose you're going to whaling, so you'd better get used to that sort of thing. I told him that I never liked to sleep too in a bed, 
but that I should ever do so. It would depend upon who the harpooner might be, and that if he, the landlord, really had no other place for me, and that the harpooner was decidedly not objectionable, why rather than wander further about a strange town on so bitter a night, I would put up with the half of any decent man's blanket. I thought so. All right, take a seat. Supper? You want supper? Supper will be ready directly. I sat down on an old wooden settle, carved all over like a bench on the battery. At one end, a ruminating tar was still further adorning it with his jackknife, stooping over it and diligently working away at the space between his legs. He was trying his hand at a ship under a full sail, but he didn't make much headway, I thought. At last, some four or five of us were summoned to our meal in an adjoining room. It was cold as Iceland, no fire at all. The landlord said he couldn't afford it. Nothing but two dismal tallow candles, each in a winding sheet. We were fain to button up our monkey jackets and hold to our lips cups of scalding tea with our half-frozen fingers. But the fare was the most substantial kind. Not only meat and potatoes, but dumplings. Good heavens, dumplings for supper. One young fellow in a green box coat addressed himself to these dumplings in a more direful manner. My boy, said the landlord, you'll have the nightmare to a dead sartainty. Landlord, I whispered, that ain't the harpooner, is it? Oh no, said he, looking sort of diabolically funny. The harpooner is a dark-complexioned chap. He never eats the dumplings, he don't. He eats nothing but steaks, and likes them rare. The devil he does, says I. Where is that harpooner? Is he here? He'll be here afore long, was the answer. I could not help it, but I began to feel suspicious of this dark-complexioned harpooner. At any rate, I made up my mind that if it was so turned out that we would sleep together, he must undress and get into the bed before I did. Supper over, the company went back to the bar room, when knowing not what else to do with myself, I resolved to spend the most of the evening as a looker-on. Presently a rioting noise was heard without. Starting up, the landlord cried, That's the Grampus's crew. I seed her reported in the offering this morning four years voyage in a full ship. Hurrah, boys. Now we'll have the latest news from the Fijis. A tramping of sea boots was heard in the entry. The doors flung open and enrolled a wild set of mariners enough. Enveloped in their shaggy watch coats and with their heads muffled in the woolen comforters, all bardened and ragged, and their beards stiff with icicles. They seemed an eruption of bears from Labrador. They had just landed from their boat, and this was the first house they entered. No wonder then that they made a straight wake for the whale's mouth, the bar, when the wrinkled little old Jonah, their officiating, soon poured them out brimmers all around. 
One complained of a bad cold in his head, upon which Jonah mixed him a pitch-like potion of gin and molasses, which he swore was the sovereign cure for all colds and guitars whatsoever, never mind of how long standing, or whether caught off the coast of Labrador or on the weather side of a nice island. The liquor soon mounted in their heads, as it generally does, even with the errantest topers newly landed from sea, and they began capering about most obstreperously. I observed, however, that one of them held somewhat aloof, and though he seemed desirous not to spoil the hilarity of his shipmates by his own sober face, yet upon the whole he refrained from making as much noise as the rest. This man interested me at once, and since the sea gods had ordained that he should come home, that he should soon become my shipmate, though but a sleeping partner one, so far as the narrative concerned, I will here venture upon a little description of him. He stood full six feet in height, with noble shoulders, and a chest like a cofferdom. I have seldom seen such brawn in a man. His face was deeply brown and burnt, making his white teeth dazzling by contrast, while in the deep shadows of his eyes floated some reminiscences that did not seem to give him much joy. His voice at once announced that he was a southerner, and from his fine stature I thought he must be one of those tall mountaineers from the Alleghanian Ridge in Virginia. When the revelry of his companions had mounted to its height, this man slipped away, unobserved, and I saw no more of him till he became my comrade on the sea. In a few minutes, however, he was missed by his shipmates, and being, it seems, for some reason, a huge favorite with them, they raised a cry of, Bulkington, Bulkington, where's Bulkington? And darted out the house in pursuit of him. It was now about nine o'clock, and the room seeming almost supernaturally quiet after these orgies, I began to congratulate myself upon a little plan that had occurred to me just previous to the entrance of the seaman. No man prefers to sleep too in a bed. In fact, you would a good deal rather not sleep with your own brother. I don't know how it is, but people like to be private when they're sleeping. And when it comes to sleeping with an unknown stranger, in a strange inn, in a strange town, and that stranger a harpooner, then your objections indefinitely multiply. Nor was there any earthly reason why I, as a sailor, should sleep two in a bed more than anybody else. For sailors no more sleep two in a bed at sea than bachelor kings do ashore. To be sure, they all sleep together in one apartment, but you have your own hammock and cover yourself with your own blanket and sleep in your own skin. The more I pondered over this harpooner, the more I abominated the thought of sleeping with him. It was fair to presume that being a harpooner, his linen or woolen, as the case might be, would not be the tidiest, certainly none the finest. I began to twitch all over. Besides, it was getting late, and any decent harpooner ought to be home and going bedwards. Suppose now he should tumble in upon me at midnight. How could I tell from what vile hole he had been coming? 
Landlord, I've changed my mind about the harpooner. I shan't sleep with him. I'll try the bench here. Just as you please. I'm sorry I can't spare you a tablecloth or a mattress. And it's a plaguey rough board here. Feeling of the knots and notches. But wait a bit, Scrimshander. I've got a carpenter's plane there in the bar. Wait, I say, and I'll make ye snug enough. So saying he procured the plane, and with his old silk handkerchief first dusting the bench, vigorously set to planing away at my bed, the while grinning like an ape. The shavings flew right and left, till at last the plane iron became bump against an indestructible knot. The landlord was near spraining his wrist, and I told him, for heaven's sake, to quit. The bed was soft enough to suit me, and I did not know how all the planing in the world could make the eider down of a pine plank. So gathering up the shavings with another grin, and throwing them into a great stove in the middle of the room, he went about his business and left me in a brown study. I now took the measure of the bench, and found that it was a foot too short. But that could be mended with a chair. But it was a foot too narrow, and the other bench in the room was about four inches higher than the planed one, so there was no yoking them. I then placed the first bench lengthwise along the only clear space against the wall, leaving a little interval in between for my back to settle down in but I soon found that there came such a draft of cold air above me under the sill of the window that this plan would never do at all, especially as another current from the rickety door met the one from the window, and both together formed a series of small whirlwinds in the immediate vicinity of the spot where I had thought to spend the night. The devil fetched that harpooner, thought I, but stop, couldn't I steal a march on him? bolt his door inside and jump into his bed, not to be wakened by the most violent knockings. It seemed no bad idea, but upon second thoughts I dismissed it, for who could tell but the next morning, so soon as I popped out of the room, the harpooner might be standing in the entry, all ready to knock me down. Still, looking round me again, and seeing no possible chance, spending an insufferable night unless in some other person's bed, I began to think that after all I might be cherishing unwarrantable prejudices against this unknown harpooner. Thinks I, I'll wait a while. He must be dropping in before long. I'll have a good look at him, and then perhaps we may become jolly good bedfellows after all. There's no telling. But though the other boarders kept coming in by ones, twos, and threes, and going to bed, and yet no sign of my harpooner. Landlord, said I, what sort of a chap is he? Does he always keep to such late hours? It was now hard upon twelve o'clock. The landlord chuckled again with his lean chuckle, and seemed to be mighty tickled at something beyond my comprehension. No, he answered. Generally, he's an early bird. Early to bed and early to rise. Yes, he's the bird that catches the worm. But tonight, he went out of peddling, you see, 
I don't see what on earth keeps him so late. Unless, maybe, he can't sell his head. Can't sell his head. What sort of a bamboozling story is this you're telling me? Getting into a towering rage. Do you pretend to say that this harpooner is actually engaged in this blessed Saturday night, or rather Sunday morning, and peddling his head around town? That's precisely it, said the landlord, and I told him he couldn't sell it here. The market's overstocked. With what? shouted I. With heads, to be sure. Ain't there too many heads in the world? I'll tell you what it is, landlord, said I quite calmly. You'd better stop spinning that yarn on me. I'm not green. Maybe not, taking out a stick and whittling a toothpick. But I'd rather guess you'll be done brown if that ear harpooner hears you a slander in his head. I'll break it for him, said I, now flying into a passion again at this unaccountable farrago of the landlord's. It's broke already, said he. Broke, said I. Broke, do you mean? Certain. And that's the very reason he can't sell it, I guess. Landlord, said I, going up to him as cool as Mount Hecla in a snowstorm. Landlord, stop whittling. You and I must understand one another, and that too without delay. I come to your house and want a bed. You tell me you can only give me half of one, that the other half belongs to a certain harpooner. And about this harpooner, whom I have not yet seen, you persist in telling me the most mystifying and exasperating stories, tending to beget in me an uncomfortable feeling towards the man whom you designed for my bedfellow. A sort of connection, landlord, which is an intimate and confidential one in the highest degree. I now demand of you speak out and tell me who and what this harpooner is and whether I shall be in all respects safe to spend the night with him. In the first place, he'll be so good to his unsay this story about selling his head, which if were true I take to be good evidence that this harpooner is stark mad and I have no idea of sleeping with a madman. And you, sir... You, I mean, landlord, you, sir, by trying to induce me to do so knowingly, would thereby render yourself liable to a criminal prosecution. Well, said the landlord, fetching a long breath, that's a very long sermon for a chap that rips a little now and then. But be easy, be easy. This here harpooner I've been telling you of has just arrived from the South Seas where he bought up a lot of bombed New Zealand heads. Great curious, you know. And he sold all on them but one. And that's one he's trying to sell tonight. Because tomorrow's Sunday. And it would not do to be selling human heads about the streets when folks is going to churches. He wanted to, last Sunday. But I stopped him just as he was going out the door, with four heads strung on a string for all the earth like a string of onions. This account cleared up the otherwise unaccountable mystery and showed that the landlord, after all, had no idea of fooling me, but at the same time 
what I could think of a harpooner who stayed out of a Saturday night clean into Holy Sabbath, engaged in such a cannibal business as selling the heads of dead idolaters. Depend upon it, landlord. That harpooner is a dangerous man. He pays regular, was the rejoinder. But come, it's getting dreadful late. You had better be turning flukes. It's a nice bed. Sal and me slept in it that year of bed that night we were spliced. There's plenty room for two to kick about in that bed. It's an almighty big bed, that. Why, before we give it up, Sal used to put our Sam and little Johnny in the foot of it. But I got dreaming and sprawling about one night, and somehow Sam got pitched on the floor and came near breaking his arm. After that, Sal said it wouldn't do. Come along here. I'll give ye a glim and a jiffy. And so saying, he lighted a candle and held it towards me, offering to lead the way. But I stood irresolute, when looking at the clock in the corner, he exclaimed, I vomit Sunday. You won't see that harpooner tonight. He's come to anchor somewhere. Come along then. Do come, won't you come? I considered the matter a moment, and then upstairs we went, and I was ushered into a small room, cold as a clam, and furnished, sure enough, with the prodigious bed almost big enough indeed for any four harpooners to sleep abreast. There, said the landlord, placing the candle on a crazy old sea chest that did double duty as a washstand and center table. There, make yourself comfortable now, and good night to ye. I turned round from eyeing the bed, but he had disappeared. Folding back to the counterpane, I stooped over the bed, though none of the most elegant yet stood the scrutiny tolerably well. And then I glanced around the room, and besides the bedstead and center table, could see no other furniture belonging to the place, but a rude shelf, the four walls, and a papered fireboard representing a man striking a whale. Of things not properly belonging to the room, there was a hammock lashed up and thrown upon the floor in one corner, also a large seaman's bag contained the harpooner's wardrobe, no doubt, in lieu of a land trunk. Likewise, there was a parcel of outlandish fishbone hooks on the shelf over the fireplace, and a tall harpoon standing in the head of the bed. But what is this on the chest? I took it up and held it close to the light, and felt it, and smelt it and tried every possible way to arrive at some satisfactory conclusion concerning it. I can compare it to nothing but a large doormat, ornamented at the edges with little tinkling tags, something like a stained porcupine quills around an Indian moccasin. There was a hole or slit in the middle of this mat, the same as the South American ponchos, but it could it be possible that any sober harpooner would get into that doormat and parade the streets of any Christian town in that sort of guise. I put it on to try it, and it weighed me down like a hamper, being uncommonly shaggy and thick, and I thought a little damp, 
as though this mysterious harpooner had been wearing it of a rainy day. I went up in it and a bit of glass stuck against the wall, and I never saw such a sight in my life. I tore myself out in such a hurry that I gave myself a kink in the neck. I sat down on the side of the bed and commenced thinking about this head-pedaling harpooner and his doormat. After thinking some time on the bedside, I got up and took off my monkey jacket and then stood in the middle of the room thinking. I then took off my coat and thought a little more on my shirt sleeves, but beginning to feel very cold now, half undressed as I was, and remembering what the landlord said about the harpooners not coming home at all that night. It being so very late, I made no more ado, but jumped out of my pantaloons and boots, and then blowing out the light, tumbled into bed, and committed myself to the care of heaven. Whether that mattress was stuffed with corn cobs or broken crockery, there is no telling, but I rolled about a good deal and could not sleep for a long time. At last I slid off into a light doze and pretty nearly made a good offing towards the land of Nod when I heard a heavy footfall in the passage and saw a glimmer of light come into the room from under the door. Lord save me, thinks I. That must be the harpooner the infernal head-paddler, but I lay perfectly still and resolved not to say a word till spoken to. Holding a light in one hand and the identical New Zealand head in the other, the stranger entered the room, and without looking towards the bed, placed his candle a good way off from me on the floor in one corner and began working away at the knotted cords of the large bag I before spoke of as being in the room. I was all eagerness to see his face, but he kept it averted for some time while employed in unlacing the bag's mouth. This accomplished, however, he turned around. When, good heavens, what a sight. Such a face. It was of a dark, purplish-yellow color, here and there stuck over with large, blackish-looking squares, Yes, it's just as I thought. He's a terrible bedfellow. He's been in a fight, got dreadfully cut, and here he is, just from the surgeon. But at that moment he chanced to turn his face so towards the light that I plainly saw they could not be sticking plasters at all. Those black squares on his cheeks, they were stains of some sort or another. At first I knew not what to make of this, but soon... An inkling of truth occurred to me. I remembered a story of a white man, a whaleman who, falling among the cannibals, had been tattooed by them. I concluded that this harpooner, in the course of his distant voyages, must have met with a similar adventure. And what is it, thought I after all? It's only his outside. A man can be honest in any sort of skin. But then what to make of his unearthly complexion, that part of it, I mean, lying round about and completely independent of the squares of tattooing. To be sure, it might be nothing but a good coat of tropical tanning, but I never heard of a hot sun's tanning a white man into a purplish-yellow one. However, I had never been in the South Seas, and perhaps the sun there produced these extraordinary effects upon the skin.
Now while all these ideas were passing through me, like lightning, this harpooner never noticed me at all. But after some difficulty having opened his bag, he commenced fumbling in it, and presently pulled out a sort of tomahawk and a sealskin wallet with the hair on. Placing these on the old chest in the middle of the room, he then took the New Zealand head, a ghastly thing enough, and crammed it down into the bag. He now took off his hat, a new beaver hat, when I came nigh singing out with a fresh surprise. There was no hair on his head, none to speak of at least, nothing but a small scalp knot twisted up on his forehead. His bald purplish head now looked for all the world like a midwheeled skull. Had not the stranger stood between me and the door, I would have bolted out of it quicker than I ever bolted a dinner. Even as it was, I thought something of slipping out the window. But it was the second floor back. I am no coward, but what to make of this head-peddling, purple rascal altogether past my comprehension. Ignorance is the parent of fear, and being completely nonplussed and confounded about the stranger, I confess that I was now as much afraid of him as it was the devil himself who had thus broken into my room at the dead of night. In fact, I was so afraid of him that I was not game enough just then to address him and demand a satisfactory answer concerning what seemed inexplicable to him. Meanwhile, he continued the business of undressing, and at last showed his chest and arms. As I live, these covered parts of him were checkered with the same squares as his face. His back, too, was all over the same dark squares. He seemed to have been in the Thirty Years' War, and just escaped it with a sticking plaster shirt. Still more, his very legs were marked, as if a parcel of green frogs were running up in the trunks of the young palms. It was now quite plain that he must be some abominable savage or other shipped aboard for a whaleman in the South Seas, and so landed in this Christian country. I quaked to think of it. A peddler of heads, too, perhaps the heads of his own brothers. He might take a fancy to mine. Heavens, look at that tomahawk. But there was no time for shuddering, for now the savage went about something that completely fascinated my attention and convinced me that he must indeed be a heathen. Going to his heavy grigo, or rapal, or dreadnought, which he had previously hung on the chair, he fumbled in the pockets and produced at length a curious little deformed image with a hunch on his back and exactly the color of three days old Congo baby. Remembering the embalmed head, at first I almost thought this black mannequin was a real baby, preserved in a similar manner. But seeing that it was not all limber, and that it glistened a good deal like polished ebony, I conclude that it must be nothing but a wooden idol, which indeed it proved to be. For now the savage goes up to the empty fireplace, and removing the papered fireboard, sets up this little hunchbacked image, like a ten-pin, between the andirons. The chimney jams and all the bricks inside 
were very sooty, so that I thought this fireplace made an appropriate little shrine or chapel for his Congo idol. I now screwed my eyes hard towards the half-hidden image, feeling but ill at ease meantime to see what was next to follow. First he takes out a double handful of shavings out of his Grigo pocket and places them carefully before the idol, then laying a bit of ship biscuit on top and applying the flame from the lamp, he kindled the shavings into a sacrificial blaze. Presently, after many hasty snatches into the fire and still hastier withdrawals of his fingers, whereby he seemed to be scorching them badly, he at least succeeded in drawing out the biscuit, then blowing off the heat and ashes a little, he made a polite offer to the little negro, but the little devil did not seem to fancy such dry sort of fare at all. He never moved his lips. All these strange antics were accompanied by still stranger guttural noises from the devotee, who seemed to be praying in a sing-song, or else singing some pagan psalmody or other, during which his face twitched about in the most unnatural manner. Alas, extinguishing the fire, he took the idol up unceremoniously and bagged it again in his Grigo pocket as carelessly as if it were a sportsman bagging a dead woodcock. All these queer proceedings increased my uncomfortableness, and seeing him now exhibiting strong symptoms of concluding his business operations and jumping into bed with me, I thought it was high time now or never, before the light was put out, to break the spell in which I had long been bound. But the interval I spent deliberating what to say was a fatal one. Taking up his tomahawk from the table, he examined the head of it for an instant, and then holding it to the light, with his mouth on the handle, puffed out great clouds of tobacco smoke. The next moment the light was extinguished, and this wild cannibal, tomahawk between his teeth, sprang into bed with me. I sang out, I could not help it now. Giving a sudden grunt of astonishment, he began feeling me, stammering out something, I knew not what. I rolled away from him against the wall, and then conjured him, whoever or whatever he might be, to keep quiet, and let me get up and light the lamp again but his guttural responses satisfied me at once that he but ill comprehended my meaning. Who e devil you? He at last said, You no speak ye, damn me, I kill ye. And so saying, the lighted tomahawk began flourishing about in the dark. Landlord, for God's sake, Peter Coffin, shattered I, Landlord, watch, coffin, angel, save me. Speak ye, tell me who ye be, or damn me, I kill ye, again growled the cannibal, while his horrid flourishings of the tomahawk scattered the hot tobacco ashes about me till I thought my linen would get on fire. But thank heaven, at that moment the landlord came into the room, light in hand, and leaping from the bed I ran up to him. Don't be afraid now, said he, grinning again. 
Queequeg here wouldn't harm a hair of your head. Stop your grinning, shattered eye. And why didn't you tell me that the infernal harpooner was a cannibal? I thought you knew it. Didn't I tell you he was peddling heads around town? But turn flukes again and go to sleep. Queequeg, look here. You savvy me. I savvy you. This man sleep you. You savvy? Me savvy plenty, grunted Queequeg, puffing away at his pipe and sitting up in bed. You get ye in, he added, motioning to me with his tomahawk and throwing the clothes to one side. He really did this in not an only civil, but a really kind and charitable way. I stood looking at him for a moment. For all his tattooings, he was on the whole a clean, comely-looking animal. What's all this fuss I've been making about, thought I to myself. A man's a human being just as I am. He has just as much reason to fear me as I have to be afraid of him. Better sleep with a sober cannibal than a drunken Christian. Landlord, said I, tell him to stash his tomahawk there, or pipe, or whatever you call it. Tell him to stop smoking, in short, and I will turn in with him. But I don't fancy having a man smoking in bed with me. It's dangerous. Besides, I ain't insured. This being told to Queequeg, he at once complied and again politely motioned me to get into bed, rolling over to one side as much as to say, I won't touch a leg of ye. Good night, landlord, said I. You may go. I turned in and never slept better in my life. Upon waking next morning about daylight, I found Queequeg's arm thrown over me in the most loving and affectionate manner. You'd almost thought I had been his wife. The counterpane of, was a patchwork full of odd little party-colored squares and triangles, and this arm of his tattooed all over with an interminable Cretan labyrinth of a figure, no two parts of which were the precise shade owing, I suppose, to his keeping his arm at sea, unmethodically in sun and shade. His shirt sleeves irregularly rolled up at various times. The same arm of his, I say, looked for all the world like a strip of that same patchwork quilt. Indeed, partly lying on it was this arm when I first awoke. I could hardly tell it from the quilt. They so blended their hues together and it was only by the same sense of weight and pressure that I could tell that Queequeg was hugging me. My sensations were strange. Let me try to explain them. When I was a child, I well remember to a somewhat similar circumstance that befell me. Whether it was a reality or a dream, I never could entirely settle. The circumstance was this. I had been cutting up some caper or other, I think it was trying to crawl up the chimney, as I had seen a little sweep do a day's previous, and my stepmother, who, somehow or other, was all the time whipping me, or sending me to bed supperless. My mother dragged me by the legs out of the chimney and packed me off to bed, though it was only two o'clock in the afternoon of the 21st June. 
the longest day in the year in our hemisphere. I felt dreadfully, but there was no help for it. So upstairs I went into my little room in the third floor, undressed myself as slowly as possible so as to kill time, and with a bitter sigh got between the sheets. I lay there dismally, calculating the sixteen hours must elapse before I could hope for a resurrection. Sixteen hours in bed. The small of my back ached to think about it. And it was so light, too. The sun shining in the window, and the great rattling of coaches in the streets, and the sound of gay voices all over the house. I felt worse and worse. At last I got up, dressed, and softly going back down in my stocking feet, sought out my stepmother, and suddenly threw myself at her feet, beseeching her as a particular favor to give me good slippering for my misbehavior. Anything indeed but condemning me to lie abed on such an unendurable length of time. But she was the best and most conscious of stepmothers, and back I had to go to my own room. For several hours I lay there bored awake, feeling a great deal worse than I have ever done since, since from the greatest subsequent misfortunes, at last I must have fallen into a troubled nightmare of a doze, and slowly waking from it, half steeped in dreams, I opened my eyes, and before the sunlit room was now wrapped in outer darkness, instantly I felt a shock running through all my frame. Nothing was to be seen, and nothing was to be heard, but a supernatural hand seemed to place in mine. My arm hung over the counterpane, and the nameless, unimaginable silent form, or phantom, to which the hand belonged, seemed closely seated by my bedside. For what seemed ages piled upon ages, I lay there, frozen with the most awful fears, not daring to drag away my hand, yet ever thinking that if I could but stir it, one single inch, the horrid spell would be broken. I knew not how this consciousness at last glided away from me, but waking in the morning, I shudderingly remembered it all, and for days and weeks and months afterwards I lost myself in confounding attempts to explain the mystery. Nay, to this very hour, I often puzzle myself with it. Now take away the awful fear and my sensations at feeling the supernatural hand and mine were very similar in their strangeness to those which I experienced on waking up and seeing Queequeg's pagan arm thrown around me. But at length all the past night's events soberly recurred, one by one, in fixed reality, and then I lay only alive to the comical predicament, for though I tried to move his arm, unlock his bridge-room clasp. Yet, sleeping as he was, he still hugged me tightly, as though not by death should part us twain. I now strove to rouse him, Queequeg, but his only answer was a snore. I then rolled over, my neck feeling as if it were a horse collar, and suddenly felt a slight scratch. Throwing aside the counterpane, there lay the tomahawk sleeping by the savage's side, as if it were a hatch-faced baby. A pretty pickle, truly, thought I, abed here in the strange house in the broad day, 
with a cannibal and a tomahawk. Queequeg, in the name of goodness, Queequeg, wake. At length, by dint of much wriggling and loud and incessant expostulations on becomingness of his hugging a fellow male in that matrimonial sort of style, I succeeded in extracting a grunt, and presently he drew back his arm, shook himself all over like a Newfoundland dog just from the water, and sat up in bed, stiff as a pike staff, looking at me and rubbing his eyes as if he did not altogether remember how I came to be there, though a dim unconscious of knowing something about me slowly dawning over him. Meanwhile, I lay quietly eyeing him, having no serious misgivings now, and bent upon narrowly observing so curious a creature. When at last his mind seemed made up, touching the character of his bedfellow, and he became, as it were, reconciled to the fact. He jumped out upon the floor, and by certain signs and sounds gave me to understand that, if it pleased me, he would dress first and then leave me to dress afterwards, having the whole apartment to myself. Thinks I, Queequeg, under the circumstances, this a very civilized overture. But the truth is, these savages have an innate sense of delicacy. Say what you will, it is marvelous how essentially polite they are. I pay this particular compliment to Queequeg because he treated me with so much civility and consideration while I was guilty of great rudeness, staring at him from the bed and watching all his toilet motions, for the time my curiosity getting the better of my breeding. Nevertheless, a man like Queequeg you don't see every day. He and his ways were well worth unusual regarding. He commenced dressing at top by donning his beaver hat, a very tall one, by the by, and then, still minus his trousers, he hunted up his boots. What under the heavens he did it for, I cannot tell, but his next movement was to crush himself, boots in hand, and hat on under the bed, when from sundry violent gaspings, and strainings, I inferred he was hard at work booting himself, though by no law of propriety that I ever heard of is any man required to be private when putting on his boots. But Queequeg, do you see, was a creature in the transition state, neither caterpillar nor butterfly. He was just enough civilized to show off his outlandishness in the strangest possible manner. His education was not yet completed. He was an undergraduate. If he had not been a small degree civilized, he very probably would have not troubled himself with his boots at all. But then, if he had not still been a savage, he never would have dreamt of getting under the bed to put them on. At last, he emerged with his hat and very much dented and crushed down over his eyes and began creaking and limping about the room, as if not being so much accustomed to his boots his pair of damp, wrinkled cowhide ones, probably not made to order either, rather pinched and tormented him at the first off of a bitter cold morning. Seeing now that there were no curtains to the window, and that the street being very narrow, the house opposite commanded a plain view into the room, and observing more and more the indecorous figure that Queequeg made, 
staving out with little else but his hat and boots on, I begged him as well as I could to accelerate his toilet somewhat, and particularly to get into his pantaloons as soon as possible. He complied, and then proceeded to wash himself. And that time in the morning, any Christian would have washed his face, but Queequeg, to my amazement, contented himself with restricting his abulations to his chest, arms, and hands. And then he donned his waistcoat, and taking up a piece of hard soap on the washstand center table, dipped it into the water, and commenced lathering his face. I was watching to see where he kept his razor, when lo and behold he takes the harpoon from the bed corner, slips out the long wooden stock, unsheaths the head, wets it a little on his boot, and striding up to the bit of the mirror against the wall, begins a vigorous scraping, or rather harpooning of his cheeks. Thinks I, Queequeg, this is using Roger's best cutlery with a vengeance. Afterwards, I wondered the less at this operation when I came to know of what fine steel the head of a harpoon is made, and how exceedingly sharp the long straight edges are always kept. The rest of his toilet was soon achieved, and he proudly marched out of the room, wrapped up in his great pilot monkey jacket, and sporting his harpoon like a marshal's baton. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.